0: Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 27, and what we saw the last time was uh, really the first half of the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, and today we're going to finish it. Now, we looked at Jesus, and when we go through the Gospels, if you've been a believer for any amount of time, the religious system had a thing going, they had a groove, and it worked for them, and Jesus came in and he shook it up, because it wasn't what God would have preferred. Uh, some of it was outright sinful. The political system, there was a certain tenuous relationship between the Romans and the Jews, but it worked. Jesus came in and of course he, he said this is what the Lord wants and he broke up that relationship and both sides wanted to put him to death because he was upsetting the, the apple cart. Now today, he ruffles the feathers with the social system. And if, as we look through this, we'll see at the end he speaks about love and the way God looks at love. and and greeting and friendliness and things to that nature. With With the social system, he's also ruffling some feathers. Now, even today as a church, it would be a shame if we didn't look at this and think about what we're going through today. Some of us may feel uncomfortable as we read this because anything that ruffles up protocol or etiquette or what you're supposed to do, we figured it out in 2010 in the East Coast. You know, we're East Coast people. But Jesus, as we start reading his teachings, we may see that he may shake up the fiber of weeks of how we look at the social, our social interactions, and may challenge us to change. Now, just a little recap in the first half of this. Uh, You know, we saw that you can be a believer, and at some point we should be a disciple. We come to God, God broken, empty. He fills us. He empowers us with the Holy Spirit. We go out and we represent them. It's a lifestyle then you see the world's reaction, and normally it's, it's a negative reaction. And then the challenge, we, he kind of left it off, or we left it off, because I don't want to cram it all in one sermon. Uh, the challenge was to live by God's precepts that went deeper or greater or more righteous than the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, and most were scratching their head, I'm sure, including his disciples. But these guys are so meticulous. You know, how could we be better than that? And Jesus, you know, we see that they had a surface relationship, but they really didn't come from their heart. And, of course, the, the, the cool thing about God is so when I go to pray, uh, I just I spill out my motives. I search deep within my heart because what's the sense in trying to hide it? He can see through the veneer of phoniness. So when we go to pray, like the Pharisee and the tax collector Jesus said it was the tax collector that was justified, not the Pharisee, because the tax collector was honest about his shortcomings and his sins, and therefore he went before God justified. So we need to understand that God made our minds, he made our bodies. He can see, he can read our thoughts, we'll see that. So verse 27, he says, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You have heard that it was said. In this chapter, he says it six times. Now, when he was being tempted and the devil was tempting him, he said to the devil, it is written, a reference directly to God's word. But to the people in this teaching, he says, you have heard that it was said because God's law by that time had become diluted. There was the Talmuds, more specifically the Halakha, there was the commentaries on the scripture, rabbinical commentaries. And even today, in, in many forms of Judaism, they follow more of the commentaries than going right back to the source. There were loopholes. There were things taken out of context. God's word became an unrecognized mixture of some of God's law, but much of man's tradition. And the life was squeezed out of the law. So Jesus came to change that. He came to set the record straight. And it isn't, it's not much different today, even in our courts Right The people vote in a legisl- a legislator, and they make laws and then, with one opinion from some superior court judge or some uh, federal judge with one stroke of the pen, they say i don 't like that law. this is what I think it means," and they change the law it 's an assault on the very fiber of the things that made this country great, even in christendom. There's some bizarre doctrines out there that 's why we give out bibles that 's why we want you to read along. With Bibles, and I've said this uh, before. Calvary Chapel pastors train their con- their, their uh, congregation to be able to pick out a fraud or a falsity. And what we do is we paint as pastors ourselves into a box. So if we started to get egocentric and started to change things, the congregation would say, "No, no, no. We've been taught this for so many years. You can't go there." So beware of man and go back to the source, which is God's word. Now. We left off with the understanding of murder and anger and things that fester in the heart that are like murdering someone in the heart. Here, we're in adultery, which is the, second, or the seventh commandment, excuse me. And my wife and I, we, you know, we'll read current events together. And after 19 years of being together, we're still very communicative. And then you, know, you see this adultery thing. And, and unfortunately, it, it happens too frequently in ministry. And of course, I have a different take on things. I, I look at that and I'm like, "Babe, adultery. Who's got time for adultery?" You know what I'm saying? I'm like, "These guys need to get a second job if they're idle." But I, I can be a little sanctimonious about that. However, Jesus said that if I've ever looked at uh, a woman with in, in my heart and lusted after her, I've already committed it in my heart. And the root of it again is not the actual act, but it's the lust in the heart, and we're guilty. Now, does that mean that we should, and I've heard this, well, shouldn't you just go all the way and enjoy the pleasures of sin if you're already condemned? No, that's ridiculous. There is a difference between the thought, and yeah, I have heard those questions. Uh, Some of you are grumbling. Uh, But there is a difference between the thought and the action. And what it tells us, and what Jesus tells us is, we're not as righteous as we might think. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus, he said, I've kept all these commandments since I was young. And and the truth is, this teaching exposes that there are things of the heart where you've broken at least one or many of the Ten Commandments. So verse 29, Jesus says, And if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, this was a teaching style. Jesus had some very interesting styles that uh, folks today still emulate because he is the master. But this is a truth through hyperbole. Okay? In other words, uh, if we were to follow this literally, which was not his intention, we'd all be seeing in mono instead of stereo. <laughs> None of us would have a right hand. And I don't know if any of us would have made it to church today. You know? But the truth is, even if you're blind, if you pluck them both out, you can still lust because things go on in the mind. And, you know, what Jesus is saying here is that to remove things from our lives that cause us to sin. Calvary Chapel has some good policies that the pastors, even though we're autonomous, we follow these these guidelines. As a matter of fact... um, Church Mutual is, our, that is the company that insures most churches, and they'll send out a newsletter about how to keep, because they're concerned too, because they have to pay out claims and things like that. So uh, it's funny because the Calvary Chapel policy, and I see the Church Mutual policy, they even say a male minister ministering or uh, counseling a female should leave the door open in the office. And even if nothing's going on, it removes the appearance of sin. So there's certain things that we do to try to avoid a situation which could cause us to fall into temptation. Calvary Chapel's got some good policies that way. Again, it it starts in the heart, but we don't want to get to a point where it's the point of no return and then the damage is done. So Jesus is basically saying, cut off the disease before it spreads to the rest of the body. And in a spiritual sense, get rid of things in your life before the whole person is lost and cast into hell. Okay, Brothers and sisters, we need to be serious about the things that cause us to sin. We need to be serious, and the word rooted out is such a great word, like a weed. If you pluck off the head of the dandelion, you have a stem, you think you got it. You've got to take it out by the roots. We've got to root out that sin And if we stop for a moment and think, what are the things in my life as a believer, and I can't read your mind, only God can, he knows it's there. What are the things in my life that cause me to sin? For everyone, something comes to mind. What do I have to do to root those things out? Because they're wreaking havoc on my walk with the Lord. And that's what Jesus is trying to explain to us. Verse 31, furthermore, it has been said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, this comes from Deuteronomy 24. And we know Jesus even said that God's ideal is for that a man and a woman, when they choose to be married, that they stay together. However, in Deuteronomy 24, because of sexual immorality, that was a way of to not uh, be married anymore. And of course, there's um, death, and we prefer death by natural causes. You can get remarried afterwards. But what happened back then was, again, in a male-dominated society, and for us, we don't really understand it, but back then, try to bring yourself back to that culture. A man could tell his wife to leave the house, and she could be in limbo. And if she's not divorced, you know, hey, isn't that uh, Bob's wife? Yeah, but don't get involved. You know, they're still married. So this woman really wasn't part of the household, but she wasn't free. So the law demanded, and I believe God did it so that the the woman could have some peace. He demanded that the man would actually write out a certificate of divorce and literally put it in her hand. Not Pony Express, not certified mail, put it in her hand so that she could move on with her life. Now, the problem with divorce was, over the years, it became loosely interpreted, and Jesus had to set the record straight again. Enter two major rabbinical schools at the time, and if you know your history, you'll know that you had Rabbi Shammai, at the time of Christ, was already established. He was more conservative in his outlook, but his school had some flaws, and Rabbi Hillel, You might drive down the road and see some synagogues that are named after Hillel. Uh, He was a very famous rabbi. School was established at the time of Christ. The problem with Hillel was he took liberties with God's law. And he's revered, but honestly, I think he really did God uh, a a disservice. And Jesus came to say, this is wrong. Hillel said, and this is famous, and some people actually find humor in this, but he said that a, a husband could divorce his wife for burning his meal. Right? I mean, that's, that's pretty, pretty uh, a petty reason to be able to divorce your, your wife. Now, you have to understand the historical aspect here. As you go through the Gospels, you'll see that the scribes and the Pharisees and the Herodians, and the, some of you are snickering, uh, the Herodians and the, um, uh, you know, all the, these different groups were trying to pin Jesus into a, a, a theme, right? A, a, a school. Are you part of Hillel? Are you part of Shammai? And Jesus says, I'm part of God. This is what God says. I don't care about your established schools. So understand the the culture at the time. Kind of reminds me even of the, the Calvinist versus Arminian debate. You know, they try to say, well, which one are you? Neither. Sometimes God speaks about his sovereignty, and sometimes he speaks about our free will. Don't try to pin me into a corner. I do with what the Bible says. And what happened was after the what happened during the time of Christ was they kind of were more towards Shammai because he was conservative, but then after all the Jewish wars of 70 A.D. 134 A.D. the Bar Kochba revolt, so many Jews were slaughtered that the leadership started favoring Hillel because he was more liberal and tolerant of the occupiers. So you see how fickle they went back and forth. Now, let me just say this: on the other extreme, again in our social structure. In the church of 2010, we have our ideas. And sometimes, and what's not being said here is sometimes things like divorce, adultery, homosexuality become the unpardonable sins. However, the church will readily accept haughtiness and gossip. There are no acceptable sins and unacceptable sins. The whole point of this is to show that we have failed and we need a savior. Remember, everything points to Jesus Christ. The truth is, you can come in off the street with any problem, with any sin, and you're accepted here. Don't flaunt it if it's sinful. And God, let, let God's word work on you months, years. Let him, let him change you. It isn't my job to beat you up. It's up to God to, to fill your heart, to change you, and let the Holy Spirit perfect you into what God has always had you to be. That was his plan. So again, you're accepted here. Whatever it is that you've come in with here, God will work on you if you allow him to. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So oaths and swearing, what they had become, and we'll talk about that. This is really the third commandment. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. And what happened here was, there was a, it was a game that people played. So I could say, well, I swear by the temple. Mm, that's a menza menza uh, kind of oath. I could break it or I could keep it. I swear by the gold of the temple. Well, that was a little bit more serious. You you had to keep that one. I swear by Hashem or Yahweh, which they sweared by God. And back then, that was outrageous. But you definitely had to keep that oath. What Jesus is saying, just keep your word. Enough with the games. Be a person of your word, especially if you're going to be my disciple. And again, it would be a shame if we didn't speak about what happens today. There are some believers that may say, well, if I ever get subpoenaed to court, I will tell the judge I'm not putting my hand on the Bible and swearing. But that same person may say, hey, I'll be there to help set up. I'll be there to help break down. I'll be there, and they don't show up. That's what Jesus is referring to. We can fall into the same semantics that these people fell into. You see? Just be a person of your word. Ecclesiastes 5, I love it. God says, Right, God says that I would prefer that you don't promise, and I'm paraphrasing, you can read it on your own. God says, I prefer you don't promise me anything than to promise me something and fall through. I mean, don't we agree? I I would appreciate that too. Just don't say it, then if you're going to say it and not do it. I will say this, Christian commitment is a reflection of our character. Think about that one. Christian commitment is a reflection of our character, and it works both ways. Our commitment level, we wear on the outside, and people see what kind of person we are. Now, before anyone feels, if you feel convicted, great. If you feel condemned, there is no condemnation in Christ. I will tell you, I was one of the worst offenders. Oh, I'll be there, and I'd be late, have an excuse for why I had to leave. Believe me, I broke all the rules, (laughs) and the Lord really worked on me. So there is hope, but don't just read this and not let it sink in. Read it and do what he says. It's that simple. Some believers also will make a better commitment and work harder for a pagan company than they would serving the Lord. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, probably because if they, some of them, if they serve the Lord and they serve their boss that way, they'd be fired or written up or have their pay docked. Again, these are issues that we deal with all the time. We are king's kids but we shouldn't act like spoiled royalty. There's a difference there. In the inner city, if you've been to some inner cities, uh, you'll see people on the street and they'll say, word is bond, right? You ever hear that? Anyone ever hear that expression? And what that means is my word is my bond. In the inner city, if they don't have a nice place to live and they don't have a lot of possessions, all they have is their word. Word is bond. And we need to be like that. Because... We will stand out by our integrity and our character. We can learn a lot from others. Verse 37, he says, But let your yes be yes and your no-no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one, Uh, throwing God's name out carelessly. And I'm sure you've heard some that uh, they're so desperate for you to believe them. I swear to God, I swear to this, I swear to that. I've even heard, and I don't understand this, I swear in my mother's grave. Now, what does that mean? That, that if you break your oath, she's going to come out like a zombie and, and grab you? I don't understand that. But it's creepy. So when someone has to keep swearing and swearing, it shows that probably their character is a little lacking because they're trying to really hard. To, it's like a salesman. They're trying to get you to believe them. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn him away. Now, let's look at this in context. That law is there, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But understand, that was a standard for the judges if you go back into the Torah and read that, that was for the leadership. That was for the judges. That was for a disinterested third, bar, uh, third party to be able to uh, have an organized uh, society. And if thing, laws were broken, they were to mete out that justice. Again, a disinterested third party. They would be unbiased in their, uh, in their meeting out that punishment. But what it turned to over the years was exacting revenge on someone you didn't like and excessive litigation. And they would, again, just for, just for a word, just for, uh, oh, I think I heard him blaspheme Yahweh. Let's take him and drag him before the courts, whether it happened or not. And that's what it started to become. Now, trying to ruin each other's lives over petty disputes. Understand this, that he, this has nothing to do with the government. People misread this stuff and read into it where it's not there. See, starting with Noah, the Noah covenant, there was the uh, Adamic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, but the Noah, Noah from the ark, the covenant was when he got off the boat, God spoke to Noah about a bunch of different things, and one of them was uh, how to run things in a society. And right there, he said, if a man takes another man's life, that will be required of him. Again, that's capital punishment. Now, that carries through all the way through to the New Testament, Romans 13, Paul reiterates that. There's no contradiction in the Scripture. He says the same thing, that agents of the government, whether it's uh, police in a serious situation or the military or the judicial system, would have to either stop crime, uh, prevent vigilantism. They didn't want that either. There were safe cities that you could run to if you did something, and you know, you would be protected until the courts could figure out what was happening. So the person who it was done to, if they were coming after you, they would be stopped until uh, justice was served. So understand, he's not, Jesus isn't addressing government here or the right for government to govern. Verse 39, turn the other cheek. Now, this goes with three other illustrations, and I'll break down what I believe each one of them means. Again, these have to do with person-to-person dynamics, which were in chaos by the time Jesus arrived at the scene. Because even Jesus, in John 18, if you remember, when he was struck, he protested that he was struck he didn 't strike him back, but he protested because that was done uh, contrary to the law, and these were supposed to be the religious leaders, uh, and on the cross, he forgave their actions. So what is Jesus saying here? number one don 't seek retribution don 't repay evil for evil, or every insult or hurt perpetrated upon us. Now, could it be physical? Sure, it could, but I think there 's a concept that we need to gain now. If you've ever been in a situation where you've um, got into a heated argument and your adrenaline's rushing and your, your, your breathing is shallow and you know, you're ready to scrap or whatever the case may be, To actually stop and take a step back and bring that down, the parasympathetic nervous system, to start dropping all those physiological responses takes more strength, more courage, and more of the spirit than to just go in and start arms and fists flying. You see what I'm saying? So could it be physical? Sure it could. Now, this doesn't mean that somebody who's being attacked... And, and the laws of the land say you shouldn't be robbed or mugged, that you shouldn't go to the authorities and, and you know, have the perpetrator brought to justice. So understand the concept behind this. Verse 40, he says, If anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Second point, how important are our possessions when it comes to dispute? Now, let me just say this. How many, and what's going to come to your mind, how many believers do you know don't speak anymore because of 50 bucks or 100 bucks? Maybe it's happened to you. Maybe there's an irreconciled situation with you and another person for stupid money, petty money, comes and goes. And we see this stuff all the time. Family members don't talk over silly things. Jesus is saying, here, take this and take that also. I mean, it's not, there's nothing wrong with saying, listen, I thought that this was the deal. This was my impression. This is what you said. But here, for the sake of not having problems, take the $50 or $100. Now, now some may say, well, what about $1,000? <laughs> I'm not going there, you know. <laughs> We're not going to fix a price here. But you know what I'm saying. It's the heart behind it. Now, does that mean that uh, an elderly person who's swindled out of their life savings shouldn't report that to authorities? No. No, that's not what he's saying here. Now, I'll just say this, a little public service message. There is a scam going around, and they target the elderly. And I'm going to say it from the pulpit, because if you're an older person, you should tell the people in your group that this is going around, because a lot of elderly people are being um, you know, robbed through this scam. What happens is the person calls the, uh, the elderly person's home and says, uh, and it's just this, it's, every time they come in with this complaint to the station, it's the same thing. I'm officer so-and-so from the Canadian police. We have your grandson here. And he's okay, but we can't release him unless you wire us $2,000 to this location. Can't tell you how many people fall into this. They're so nervous and so scared that they don't even check with their grandkids. They just go to Western Union and wire the money. Well, uh... it's really hard to trace and it is unsolvable because these things can be western unions way overseas where they don't have the same laws that we do in jurisdictional uh, roadblocks so I dealt with one elderly woman and she uh, I really felt bad for her and uh, she said uh, you know I want to give him a piece of my mind and she goes you know I'd rather you give him a piece of my mind (laughs) so she gives me the phone and I call him he goes this is officer so and so I said yeah this is officer so and so I'm the real police and I said, I said, who are you? I mean, I just, she was really happy at the end. But I said, um, uh, I said, I bet you're real proud of yourself ripping off old ladies for their, you know, retirement money. I said, this conversation will come up again in the judgment. And I basically told him he was going to hell. He hung up on me. <laughs> now, I don't know if I was in the spirit or the flesh, but it felt good. Okay, Verse 41. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. The third point here. In Roman law, and the Jews hated this. They absolutely you say, where do you get all these facts from? You can you can find this through secular history, you can find this through Josephus works, you can find this through so many even rabbinical teachings. So this stuff is really neat. You can find, you can bring yourself back 2,000 years into that society and see what was going on. But a Roman soldier, you could be going to the market, you could be minding your own business, and he could take his spear and tap you on the shoulder and say, here, carry my pack a mile. And they hated that. They hated being under the Roman yoke, and they certainly hated doing anything for those pagan soldiers. Now, when Jesus said, don't just go one mile, go two miles, they must have been like, what is he talking about? This is crazy. What are you saying here? Chuck Smith had a good take on this. He goes, the whole second mile, you could witness to him. You know what I'm saying? And he could see that, hey, you're different from the others. Why do you want to take my pack a second mile and maybe lead him to the Lord? You know, it's being in the, doing things in the Spirit is really tough sometimes. But they hated this. And you know what's really neat? This term, go the extra mile, we still say that today, don't we? It's part of our vernacular. Are you willing to go the extra mile? Now, we can just do what we're told to do by an authority figure, by our boss, by our parents, whatever the case may be, and say, that's all you're going to get out of me. Or we can go the extra mile. And the question is, if I met your boss, or if you met my boss on my secular job, and you said this person, do they go the extra mile? Do you know what your boss would say right off the top of your head? Would you or wouldn't you? Your ministry leader? Do you go the extra mile? You know, again, commitment is a reflection of character. And again, we can have a, we can do what's told to us, and we can have an attitude about it. Uh, go the extra mile. Verse forty-two. He says, "Give to him to, who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn him away." Now, if we have the means, and again, if we have the means, right? And we see that someone else is struggling, what is our response? Well, I love this in the book of James, chapter 2, where he says, if you see a brother struggling, if they're cold, if they need to be clothed, if they don't have food, and you say, hey, be warm and filled, uh, but not by me, see ya, is, is that, where's the faith there? He goes, is that saving faith? So the question is, see, here's the thing. Again, it it made everyone uncomfortable because there were norms of society back then. There were certain things that you were obligated to do and no more. There were certain protocols. There were certain, uh, you know, etiquettes that the social system had. And Jesus came and he just messed it all up. These were the expectations. Remember, even the Apostle Peter, and I love this, it uh, says to Jesus, we'll get to that. How many times should I forgive, Lord? Seven times, thinking he's generous. And Jesus says, 70 times seven. Could you, could, you, could you imagine the look on their faces? You know, I'd like to try to think about that. We talked about in the men's group, John 13, when the disciples, you know, not too long ago they were talking about who is going to be the greatest when Jesus comes into his kingdom. And you could probably hear a pin drop when Jesus got up from the table, took a towel, girded himself, takes a basin, fills it up with water, gets a sponge, and and they probably, all of a sudden, the murmuring went down and probably thought, what's he doing? What's he doing? What's going on here? And he starts washing their feet. And Peter protests, Lord, you won't wash my feet. That was fit for a slave, not for their Lord, who was going to come back in glory. He, He shocked their consciences. So let's just wrap this up. How do I rate? Number one. Am I I so prideful that I can't forgive and forget little hurts and insults in my life? And then the, the better question is, do I have the same standard on myself when I hurt someone else or insult them? The second point, how important are my possessions? Do they get in the way of my relationships? Am I a hoarder? This stuff is all gonna burn anyway. I mean, how much am I hoarding at the sake of my expenses or my relationships with others? Three. Am I willing to go the extra mile, or do I just do what I'm obligated to do? And four, am I the person that will help others in need, or do I walk around with blinders on? And sometimes they're purposeful blinders. What need? I don't see any need. You see what I'm saying? So these are questions we need to ask ourselves, because Jesus now ramps it up in this last section. I believe this is the culmination of everything that he was talking about, love. What are our responsibilities? Verse 43, he said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends his reign on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. He said, you have heard because it wasn't true. The law didn't say to hate your enemies. As a matter of fact, in Exodus 22, God says to be hospitable. There were laws governing hospitality middle eastern hospitality and god even says in exodus 22 to be hospitable because don't you remember that you were strangers in egypt and as a matter of fact when the children of israel left egypt although pharaoh was wicked a lot of the common folks gave them articles they gave them food for their journey so he said to be hospitable as a matter of fact in the Good Samaritan, Jesus also challenged their ideas of who's a neighbor, just a fellow Jew who's pure like me? Or could it be this Samaritan who everyone hated and, and societal, um, societal values allowed this hatred of the Samaritans? And Jesus spoke about what the Samaritans did for this man who fell and was was beat up by robbers and, and, uh, and wounded and, and nobody came to help him. The religious establishment didn't do it. So he said, who's the neighbor? He really... Uh, Tweaked their understanding of who was a neighbor and who wasn't. I love this about Jesus. He comes in and he doesn't play the game. He doesn't play ball. He comes in and says, This is what God says. <laughs> you know, like it or don't like it, here it is. And this is really a test of our understanding of what true love is and our responsibility to utilize that agape love. Jesus doesn't say phileo, he doesn't say sturgi, he doesn't say eros. He says agape, that agape love. And it was required. Now, when we pray for our enemies, how many of us really pray for our enemies? Isn't that hard to do? Doesn't the thought of some people just make you mad and you just want to talk about it? Right? And it doesn't mean pray for our enemies. I pray for my enemy, Bob. He owes me 300 bucks. I pray that he returns it. That's not praying for our enemies. You see what I'm saying? Verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. This is good. Simple greetings. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? I'm going to take a little leap here and say that greeting and friendliness has a lot to do with where your heart is with loving others. How many times do you see another Christian out somewhere and they just ignore you like they don't know you? Or have you done that? right? Again, Jesus came to ruffle some feathers, and I think that it's, it's warranted that we look at this. Um, there's clicky Christianity, and it still goes on today. I've seen it, you know? I've met people at the gym or the diner, and I uh, look all scroungy, and I, I still say hello to them. If I recognize you, say something, or, you know, I'll say hello to you. If I don't recognize you, let me know that I'm not recognizing you. There was a situation once, and this brother is cool. I mean, everything's good. You know, he really took it to heart, but I I'm not going to say names, but just for the, 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 the understanding, um, I went to a big church, he went to a big church. He was more of a somebody, and I wasn't in that group. And a third party said to him, hey, call Joe up. Uh, there was a, a, maybe a, an issue in my field that I could have helped him with. So I spend an hour on the phone with him. And then the next Sunday that I see him, uh, I see him at church, and I'm like, hey, and he looks at me, and he sidesteps me to go around me. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, no, he didn't just do that. <laughs> so, so I sidestepped to get in his path, and I put my hand on his chest, and I said, so you don't know me now. I spent an hour of my time talking to you, and now you don't know me. And I don't mind being avant-garde like that. Um, you know, and honestly, it wasn't because I was hurt. I was really doing it to help him. I really was. So Jesus struck at the heart of the phony, social, sycophantic scene. Nobody was real. Are we real? Do you know what the word hypocrite means? In Greek theater, it meant to answer from under a mask. And when you were in Greek theater, you were pretending to be somebody else. So depending on which scene it was, or which character it was, they would have these little, these masks, and you would pretend to be somebody, and then the next scene, you would be pretending to be somebody else. That's what the word hypocrite means. Are we the same in church, at the grocery store, The checkout line, getting our gas. How do we treat the gas attendant? You know, are we real? Love wasn't being exhibited, only the love of self and what I can get out of it. Everyone was changing the rules to get something out of someone else. I had to get ahead. And we have to ask ourselves, why are we friends with the people we are friends with? Is it expedient? You know, maybe they can barter with me and then I could barter with them. Is it expected? are they popular? these are the questions we should be asking the religious leaders and the people back then were pretty plastic and you know what, I'm afraid that our society is like that today, I'll tell you another quick story it's interesting, my wife was out getting some decorations for the holidays, she likes to decorate you know. my contribution is I just pull everything out and she goes through it and you know, I just watch what she does, but she went to the store and she bought a bunch of stuff and the lady at the store said to her, are you going to return this stuff too? And my wife said, what are you talking about? She goes, are you from this area? my wife said, no. She goes, oh, these ladies come here. And again, this may ruffle some feathers. These ladies come here for the holidays, spend hundreds of dollars. They put their, these uh, decorations and things out for their little socialite holiday parties. And then in January, they take all that stuff, fold it back up, put it in the, in the cardboard, they don't rip it, and return it to the store and get their money back. <laughs> yeah. You know, as much as I think I know about the world, I think I could be naive. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Heather had the same response, but it's a plastic society. I mean, do we take ourselves that seriously? Do we really want to put on airs like that? That's pathetic. I'll tell you this: the persecuted church, you know, our brothers and sisters that we'll see in heaven forever and ever and ever, over in Iran and North Korea. Their houses are being burned, they're being thrown in jail, they're being separated from their children. They don't have the luxury to be in cliques. They don't. And they don't have the luxury to take themselves so seriously or be the president of their own fan clubs. You see, if they meet another brother in in a town, they rejoice and they embrace, I never thought I'd find another believer here. The Lord must have led me to you. And I ran out of the millions of people that live there there's, um, I mean, the church is growing, but they're really being persecuted. And if in Tehran, a believer finds another believer, they rejoice, and they say it had to be from the Lord. They don't care about the, the little minute silliness of style of worship and style of, of some you know, extraneous doctrine. They just fellowship together. Think about that. When me or ego is on the throne, it's hard to love anyone else but myself. To keep the sermon of the ma- on the Sermon on the Mount, I talked about it, a believer must graduate to becoming a disciple of Christ, and it must be a lifestyle. Because if you look at all the teachings we spoke about, murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, interpersonal relationships, how to love, it's all about being other-centered. Leaving your gift on the altar. If we really love God, then we'll love those who are made in his image. I'm going to read verse 48 again. Now you say, you're going to read this and say, oh, throw up my hands, I can't do this. In the flesh, we can't do this. He says, therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, that word perfect doesn't mean sinless or flawless, although God is those things. But it means to be complete and mature. And we become complete when we really learn how to love the way God says that we should love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we, we love your word, Lord, and we love Jesus. We love Jesus because he was real, he was tangible, because he came and he didn't pick a